love for the word of God, for the truth. He's a man of integrity, and he's got a good word for us. Amen. Let's put our hands together for him. All right. Hello. Greetings from Komiki. The only place more chill than East London. Huh? Yeah, beautiful Cape. I'm from there. Cape is a bit of a weird place. People are a bit snobby. But it's very beautiful. But Komiki is not like that. People are very chill there. But it's good to be with you guys. And um, yeah, I was, I was here before as well. So it's great to see you again. And like Andre said, we, we've been, uh, been friends for a long time. We met one another in 1997. Started meeting one another in 98. Started getting better friends. And then eventually uh, we couldn't get rid of one another. He, he became a pastor at the congregation I was at as well, Tigerberg. And um, can, can I just tell a story? Is that okay, Andre? I'll tell a story. And... Um, we, we're doing men's ministry. Uh, I mean, he, he, he is really a great visionary. Let me just say that as well. He's got amazing ideas. He's an innovative guy. Uh, I always get ideas from him. And uh, but one day he said, guys, we must fast. We must fast. If this thing is going to work, we must fast. So um, we did fast for three days. Only problems... He forgot about the fast. <laughs> the rest of our dudes were fasting. Uh, but, but we were faithful in that sense. But uh, one thing I've noticed of him, and, and that's really true, he's got a tremendous prayer life. Um, I'm not saying that's in connection with an with embarrassing story I just told. But whenever you're in his house, you'll, you'll notice he'll, you know, he's just praying. He's just focusing on God. It's very interesting when he's reading scripture and he's preparing for sermons. Uh, we sometimes sort of work a bit together. I'm busy with my stuff. He's busy with his stuff. And he is forever praying. Whatever word he's bringing, whatever sort of idea that he's bringing, it's something that he's really trying to get from the throne room of God. And I really admire that. I mean, there's so many people that's got a plan, that's got an idea, but to bring it from the throne room of God. And uh, he really does that amazing. So just next time when he tells you we're fasting, just double check him. Okay, on the day of a fast, just say, Andre, are you fasting as well? Uh, so that's about the only thing. Listen, tonight I want to talk about fear, the issue of fear. Now, by that, I'm not suggesting that, uh, that you wobble when you put on your pants, right? I'm not suggesting, ladies, that you're not courageous and bold. But I'm just saying that we're in a nation that is really in the grips of fear. I mean, you just open News 24, you know we're in the grip of fear. When you talk to people, when you sit around the table, you talk to people, they're in the grip of fear. I don't know about you, but I often notice when people pray together, there's always, not always, but there's often an expectation of bad things that's going to happen. Like once a year, I get a word from somebody saying, you know, they had a vision, and the vision usually entails a thief that comes in somewhere and steals something in some way. And look, all of that is very possible, but it's just interesting the pattern every year. And when you go away a bit, I mean, I'm, I'm not much of a jet setter, I'm not much of a traveler, but I've had the privilege just through, uh, you know, ministry to, to go on missions and go to other places and experience other things. And then you come back and, and it's obviously amazing to be back because South Africa is unusually colorful. Unusually colorful. I really love it. I love the friendliness, but... When you land as well, you also feel the fear. People are afraid. When you sit with people individually, pastorally, 
and they start talking about their lives, what often starts popping out is the fears. Their fears concerning their family, concerning their careers, concerning their finances. Uh, single people, they're afraid. What if I never find somebody that's awesomeness personified? People that get married, they're worried. What if my kids does not land up in a photo shoot in a magazine? What if? Right? The guys that's working, they're like, what if I never become a CEO? What is going to happen to me? Uh, we've got all kinds of fears, all kinds of stuff driving us. And like I said this evening, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you're afraid of your own shadow. I'm not suggesting that you walk out here and you're like just walking and checking over your shoulder all the time. But, but what I am suggesting is that fear is so much part and parcel of us that we almost don't notice it anymore. And I'm suggesting tonight that fear is a terrible motive. Anything that is done out of fear is problematic. And the Bible says we've not been given a spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind, but not of fear. And guess what? Fear, it steals your power. You can't be powerful and have fear. It doesn't go together. You can't have a sound mind and fear. Can't have it. And you certainly can't have love and fear. And, and listen, by the way, that's a big problem historically of South Africa. People, groups, and people that is afraid, and because they're afraid, they don't love other people. And then terrible, thing, terrible things happen. Terrible things happen. Terrible things done in the name of making yourself safe. Cannot be justified in any way. Great destruction brought historically upon this country. Today, upon this country. Fear, we've not been given a spirit of fear. So I want to talk about fear because, like I say, you might not be sitting here tonight and go, like, I'm a fearful person. I'm not suggesting that by any way, but I'm saying it's such a big problem. It's so endemic to who we are in South Africa that we do need to talk about it. We do need to sort of root it out as best as we can. So let me look at a couple of definitions. And uh, I sort of like defining things just to make sure that, that we're sort of all on the same page and we all know what we're talking about. There's sort of two things in terms of fear that I think it's important. There's fear itself and then there's anxiety or worry. What is fear? Fear is a strong emotional reaction. It's an emotional reaction. Right? Fear can be real or imagined, rational or irrational, normal or abnormal. That's, that's a tough part of fear, isn't it? I mean, the, the fear that somebody feels can be very much justified. Uh, if a spring box in a couple of weeks are facing the All Blacks, their fear will be very much justified. All right? Going on the game yesterday. Fear can be very justified, but it can also be very abnormal. Which is it? Fear, fear to some extent is a very human experience and um, it's a very understandable human experience but not all fear is normal or justified. Fear acts as a protective reaction. Fear triggers the release of adrenaline in the body but either gets us ready for fight or flight. Fear does weird things to us because it's emotional response. I remember some years ago watching a documentary on television about um, what fear does to people. And there was a particular story about a dude that uh, is, um, he, he's a firefighter. I mean, here's a dude that runs into burning buildings. I mean, duh. I mean, I would look at him and say, look, fear is not your problem. It's not your problem. Coming home and your, your, your hair is burning, that, that's more uh, a likely problem for you. And what happened to this dude one night, he's going late, late 
at night he's driving, he's going home, and it's a typical sort of story that you cannot believe. His car gets stuck on a railroad track. And there's a train coming, and the next thing he just freezes. Here's a guy that works with danger day out, day, day in, day out, and in that moment he freezes, train goes through, he manages to survive, and he can't explain why he froze. Can't explain it. Fear makes you do weird things. But fear, to some extent, is a very rational response. And why it's such a rational response, why it's such a normal response, is because as human beings, we're in a huge, vast universe. And things can go wrong in this universe. All right? Doesn't matter how much insurance we've got, doesn't matter how many medical aids we've got, doesn't matter how close we live to the hospital. Things can go wrong, and we sort of realize that. We're very small in a very big universe. And because of that, fear is a very normal sort of reaction. But where fear is sort of healthy in the sense that it's meant to keep us safe, it sort of goes beyond that often. It becomes something that's very abnormal. It becomes something that we react on where we shouldn't fear. All right. Fearfulness is a word that is not designed by God. Let's go to the next slide. Let's look a bit at anxiety. Anxiety... I wrote down a slap bit more there, but um, anxiety has got that sort of anticipation factor to it. Uh, it's an umbrella word covering varying degrees of worry and fear, ranging from mild to extreme. It's uneasiness or distress over a threat or something unknown. Anxiety stems from uncertainty. I don't know. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? You know, it's that moment where you're lying awake at night, you're trying to figure this thing out. Is this now going to happen? Is it not? It's when... The enemy that you're seeing is not the real enemy yet. It's not like in your face yet, but you're sort of worrying that it might be that. This might happen. It's, it's the anxiety sort of bit of it. The perceived threat, the anticipation of something that's going wrong, the uncertainty. The uncertainty is the, the one that's killing you there. Anxiety can lead to catastrophic thinking. Complete overreaction. That's a problem with anxiety often. Right. Anxiety becomes a disorder when it becomes so intense that it dominates a person's thoughts, feeling, and action. I want to talk about the cause of fear and what I'm going to do here. I'm going to look at a couple of stories of a couple of men, especially in Scripture, that really went through some tough stuff. And they talk to us about fear. And I want to sort of look a bit at what they say. There's one person that's not in Scripture and is a bit more of a modern theologian. But um, I'd like to look at their sort of way in which they address fear. Now, the scripture I'd like to look at is Matthew 8, verse 23 to 27, and it's on there. And the reason why I'm looking at it, it actually comes from a sermon from a guy of the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've ever heard that name before. He's long dead. He lived in the 1930s, died in the 1940s, early 1940s. He was a German theologian. He lived in the time of Nazi, Nazi Germany. Not a good time to be there. Nazi Germany. Not a good time. And what he did, he looked at the situation of the Nazis and he said, this cannot be. So he started trying to project, protect Jewish people. And he was actually involved in a plot to kill Hitler, interesting enough. And they discovered him, they put him in a um, prisoner camp, and he was killed for his faith. Before the Allies got to the prisoner camp, uh, they strangled him. So that's a tough story, right? That's a tough story. This is a man in extreme circumstances. I mean, what would you do in Nazi Germany? 
post something on Facebook? What do you do? I mean, there's no real escape. What do you do in an extreme environment like that? We know things are really, really going wrong here. And the net result of this is not going to be good. And he saw it very clearly. What are you going to do? Now right at the beginning when the Nazis came into power, he gave a sermon about fear. And the key verse that he used was this verse. And we're going to read it together. It's Matthew 8, it's 23 to 27. It says, Then Jesus got into the boat and started to cross the lake with his disciples suddenly. That's the thing about fear, hey? You don't plan for it. Suddenly. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But, usually when scripture says but, you need to look. But, Jesus was sleeping. I mean, isn't that weird? The times that we expect Jesus to be awake, Jesus is sleeping. Maybe that's something in your life as well that you've noticed. The times that you need the most answer to prayers, the time that you feel that you're most vulnerable, the time that you're facing the biggest mountain, Jesus is sleeping. So here's the disciples, they're in a boat, they're in a very real situation, and what happens? A fierce storm struck the lake. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting. Now remember, a lot of these guys were fishermen, right? They grew up there. They were, they were, look, if you put me in a boat in a lake and a storm comes out, I'm shouting. I'm screaming. I'm in trouble. But these dudes were different. They grew up there. They were fishermen. I mean, they're not afraid of a bit of a ruckus on the, on the sea, on the lake. Imagine how bad it was that even those guys got afraid. I mean, when, when, when you're on a boat, you know you really should get afraid. It's when the sailors are screaming. You know, it's like when you're on a plane. It's okay if a person next to you is screaming. But when the air hostess and the captain is starting to scream over the microphone, then you know. It is time to pray. In tongues, Afrikaans, English, any language you can master. You must pray now. It's that sort of moment. It's a go moment. And these guys are afraid. What did they say? This is what they say when they wake up Jesus. Lord, save us. We going to drown. These guys are afraid. They are faced with a situation that's beyond their control. They cannot master this thing. Their skill level doesn't matter. Their reserves doesn't matter. Their policies doesn't matter. They're in trouble. They're going to drown. Why are you afraid, Jesus asked them. First question. Why are you afraid? Isn't that a strange question? Why are you afraid? I don't think Jesus would have made a very good pastor. Imagine you come to me, you going through the worst of the worst moment. And you say, Tiens, I'm afraid. And I go, why are you afraid? I'm like, what? Who made you a pastor? Huh? Did you get it over the internet? What's the story here? I mean, our, our, our sort of... Our, our, our sort of thinking here is that Jesus, when, when you say, Jesus, we're going to drown, the waves are on us, it's really bad that Jesus goes like, oh my word, I'm so sorry. The angel Gabriel, you know, he needed a bit of leave. It's been a tough year for him. So we've got a bit of a communication problem here. I'll send Michael, he'll sort it out. He'll sort it out. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And Jesus says, why are you afraid you have so little faith? Does not sound pastoral to me. That's not an answer I like. 
By the way, if you read the Gospels, you don't get offended. You're not reading it. You're just skimming through it. But if you read the Gospels, you go like, oh my goodness gracious, my shattered nerves. If I was in this position, you know, you're on the plane, the wing falls off. Jesus saves me. And it's like, where's your faith, man? Huh? That's not what I expect. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves. And suddenly there's great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and the waves obey. Here's the point. Yes, look. We have to be realistic. Compared to the world that we find ourselves in, we're very small. Let's be honest now. For all the frothing going on on News 24, all of that can happen in this country. For all the bad stuff that people are talking about around the table, coffee, coffee shop or in the dining room, all that bad stuff can happen. Look at your personal situation, perhaps the stuff that you're afraid of. I can't deny it. It may happen. You know what's what's the worst thing when you sit with somebody and you talk to somebody that's going through a life-threatening disease, something like cancer? I've got a very young congregation. What I mean with young is in the city bowl, most people there are like 25 to 35, and then they move to awesome places like East London. But you know, I've had a couple of cases of cancer through the years there, of, of young, young, young people, Right? You know, it's always bit of it for them always. The worst bit is uncertainty of am I going to make this or not? What does the future hold? You see, the reality is all this stuff can go wrong. But, and here's a big but, we serve a God who controls all of the universe. We've not been given a spirit of fear. Now, I want to quickly talk about why fear is our biggest enemy. Our biggest enemy is not the storm. When we look at that story, it might seem that the biggest enemy is the storm, right? Because the storm is threatening. It's a fear storm. They're going to drown. So they wake Jesus up and Jesus say, why, why are you responding this? Why is your faith so? Why did Jesus respond like that? Because in that moment, Jesus is making a point. And here's the point. The storm is bad, right? The storm is bad. But the storm is not the big problem. The big problem is fear. The big problem is fear. Why is fear the big problem? And here, I want to link to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Remember, this is now a sermon that he gives when things start really going bad. He knows what he's talking about. This is a dude that is in the situation. He's staring the lion in the eye. What does he say here? It's a bit of um, sort of elevated language, but there's a very important point here. Fear is somehow or other the arch enemy itself. The biggest enemy you have is not the storm. It's fear. Fear is your enemy. Fear is enemy. Why? It crouches in people's hearts. This is not fear. Fear starts living in your heart. It crouches in people's hearts. And then it does something in your heart. It doesn't just live there. It's not like something that lands there and it's just there. It does something there. You see, fear is like a parasite. What does it do? It hollows out the insides. It hollows out the people's insides until their resistance and strength are spent and they suddenly break down. Fear secretly gnaws or eats away at all ties that bind a person to God and to others. And when in a time of need, that person reaches for those ties and clings to them, they break. And the individual sinks back into himself or herself, helpless and despairing while hell rejoices. You know why fear is the biggest enemy? Fear is the biggest enemy because it eats away at you. It eats away at all your relationships. 
You know, the first relationship that goes is your relationship with God. It is very hard to have faith when you have fear. The opposite from faith is not unbelief. The opposite of faith is fear. And it eats that relationship. And it doesn't just eat that relationship, it eats all other relationships. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on here, and I think the second point that he's making is very important as well in terms of the fruit of fear. And he says the following, I'm just reading from this, and he says, Now fear leers that person in the face saying, We are here by ourselves, you and I. See, what fear tells you is that you are alone. You know what's the first thing that you tell people when you're afraid of something, you're really anxious about something, you're really worrying about something? You know the first thing that you tell them? I'll tell you what you tell them. Sort of hope. From my experience of listening to what people say to me. Here's what people say. You don't understand. Why do people say that? People say that because what happens is that fear is telling you it's only me and you in this boat. Jesus is not in this boat. Jesus might be sleeping, but Jesus might as well not be in this boat. It's you and I, buddy. And the waves are coming. You see, fear makes you alone. Can I have a bit of a note here for, for all the dudes? I've noticed through the years, especially for Afrikaans guys, I don't know about, you know, sort of um, the rest of the experience. For, for, is, is it true for all South African men? Please help me here. I've noticed for Afrikaans dudes, what happens is, there's a tendency to take everything on yourself. What happens is you get to a certain age. And because you don't have that friendships, where you're really honest, I'm not talking about having a bribe of somebody, I'm not talking about fishing or somebody or whatever it may be. I'm talking about being honest enough to be vulnerable, to be open, to be honest. And in that moment, fear comes for you when there's pressure on you. And fear tells you it's only you and I. And you know what happens? Men start doing stupid things. Cheat on their wives. Leave their families. Commit crime even. Weird things. Not because they're bad dudes. Not because they're trying to do those things. But because in that moment, it's that feeling of it is me alone. See, that is what fear does to you. And that's why fear, that's why fear is arch enemy. And you need to make a decision tonight. Listen, I can't guarantee to you that the storms won't strike. I can't guarantee to you tonight that the fear storm will not come up. But you make the choice of whether fear is your God or Jesus is your Lord. And that's the decision you need to make, even tonight. But you need to say to yourself, fear is a big enemy and I will not submit to fear. I've not been given a spirit of fear. You see, because fear becomes a motivator, a motive. It becomes a foundation from which you decide to do things. Fear becomes almost like that underlying thing. It becomes a petrol on which your engine runs. It becomes a wood that you put in the fire. It's that thing that seems innocuous on its own, but it becomes that thing that drives you and drives you and drives you. And it leads to a certain lifestyle. It leads to certain decision making. And we've got to say to one another, we can't make decisions by fear. You can't leave your work because you're afraid of what might happen. You can't leave East London because you're afraid of what might happen. You can't leave South Africa because you're worried about something. You can't do that. 
Because fear is creating more problems in this country than the reality of what is happening in this country. We have awesome, awesome opportunities in this country. And we can either look at this country by the eyes of faith or by the eyes of fear. And there's just too many Christians looking at this country through the eyes of fear. And it's just nonsense. Because God is not done. God, I almost want to say God hasn't even started. That's technically incorrect, but you know what I mean with it. We have an awesome opportunity in this country. We have awesome people in this country. We have awesome churches in this country. We have awesome believers in this country. You know, we pray for rain and the rain comes. El Nino destroys everyone else, the rain comes. Sure, we have problems. But things happen when we pray as a nation. There's something of God in this nation. And we can either look through fear or through faith. Now, I don't know your family. I don't know your work. I don't know your situation. But I can tell you what. God is a God of redemption. God is a God who makes all things new. And you can't give up. I'm not saying you should be in your work where you are forever. But what I'm saying is you can either approach it by fear or by faith. I'm not saying you should be in East London forever. But I'm saying you can either approach it by fear or by faith. And you need to make a choice about that. Fear is always a bad motive. See, fear leads us to be alone. Fear leads us to a place of desperation. Fear leads us to doing things on our own. Making choices on our own. Making decisions on our own. How do we overcome uh, fear? Not faith. How do we overcome fear? I quickly want to talk about that. I'm almost done for this evening. But I want to make a couple of sort of brief notes about this. This is obviously quite a big topic. Um, But I want to make one or two comments about it. First comment that I want to make about that is, let's go to the next slide. I want to look at Philippians 1. I want to look at some people that overcame fear. Let's learn from him. One example I already mentioned, and that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He overcame fear and he did unimaginable stuff because he decided fear will not drive him. By the way, he got, a, he got an opportunity to go to London. He was actually had a postulate in London. He was actually, at that time, he was already a world-famous theologian. That dude could go anywhere. He could actually leave Germany, and he decided not to do that. Sure, and he paid the price for his life, but he lived, really lived, and really made a difference, and lived a life of faith. And even today, people study him. People study him. But he decided he will not live by, fa- uh, by fear, but by faith. That's key number one. There's somebody else I'd like to look at, and that is Paul, obviously a well-known example of Paul. And Paul, a mighty man of God, I want to look at something in his life. Now, let me tell a story to sort of illustrate what I think is another factor in overcoming fear. I don't know about you, but, but when, I, when I was a kid, the meanest boxer was um, Mike Tyson. That's when I was really small. I'm not talking about the dudes now that just seem big and they sort of jab at one another, sort of do this thing, and then they get a world championship. I mean, that dude was really mean. I mean, he'll climb, you, this is now before he really got weird and then ended up in prison and ended up with tattoos, although I will still not mock him about that tattoo when you see him face to face. But I mean, he was really mean. I mean, he'll knock guys out first round, no problems. I remember as a kid watching him box, I was like, yo. This dude is mean, right? You do not want to climb in the boxing ring with Mike Tyson. And then some guy came along with the name of Buster Douglas. And no one gave this guy a chance. I mean, he doesn't look 
as mean as Mike Tyson. It doesn't look as athletic. It doesn't look like anything. And what happens, I don't know if anyone sort of rem- remembers that fight or you saw that fight when you were smaller. Am, am I speaking Greek to you here? Uh, but that's okay. Just trust me. I'm a pastor. I'm telling you the truth here. Go watch it on YouTube. I'm pretty sure you'll still find it. And you know what happened? Buster Ducks is climbing into a ring with him. Those are the days Mike Tyson will knock the guys out first round. And that's actually what he did. He knocked the living daylights out of Buster Douglas first round. The guy went down, bang, like Susa Suck Millis. He went down. And he was like crawling about there on the floor. And then literally got saved by the bell. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and I had to drag this guy. He was sitting on his chair. He looked out. He looked out for all money. And everyone thought, you know, next round, Mike Tyson will get up. He's going to get to work on this guy, and it's game over. So guess what? Next round starts, and Buster Douglas gets up, and Mike Tyson goes to work. But nothing happens. Doesn't manage to knock him down. In the eighth round, Buster Douglas knocks Mike Tyson out. Biggest sporting upset ever. How on earth did that happen? Now, here's the point. Somebody asked him afterwards, how on earth did that happen? How did that happen? How did you knock out this mean dude at the height of his powers? This guy that knocks everyone out first round. How on earth did that happen? And he said, it's real simple. What happened to me? My mother said to everyone that I will beat Mike Tyson. My mother said to everyone that cared to listen that I will beat Mike Tyson. My mother died three weeks ago. And when I was down and out, I had a decision whether I would die with her or whether I will fulfill what she said to everyone. And then he said, your why needs to be stronger than the fight. The reason why you do what you do, the reason why you live, the reason why you get up in the morning needs to be stronger than the dangers and the storms that we face. Why do you do what you do? I want to look at the example of Paul. And Paul was a dude that took a lot of beating. He took a lot of beating. Had many reasons to be afraid. Many reasons. The Bible tells us that he was whipped many times. He was given lashes. You know, when, when, when somebody was given lashes by uh, the Jewish people for blasphemy, uh, usually how they'll give lashes is 40 minus 1. That's how it comes. You can read in, in Corinthians, they tell the story of how he was beaten. 40 minus 1. And why they did that was two reasons, because at 40 lashes, chances are that the dude will die, and then the blood guilt is on you, and hey, that's not a good idea, so let's make it 40 minus 1. Other reason, and this is literally in the Old Testament, you can go and check it, Google it, um, it says in the Old Testament that you couldn't give somebody 40 lashes because they lose dignity at 40 lashes, so let's make it 40 minus 1. And he was whipped like that a couple of times. He was beaten by rods with the Romans. I mean, he was in shipwrecks. He was even stoned for one time, went into the city, he preached, they dragged him out, they threw him with rocks and they left him for dead. All right, stoning, to be thrown with rocks until they think you're dead. I mean, those guys, they weren't stupid. They would check if he's dead or not and they left him. The Bible tells in the book of Acts that the believers came, they stood around them, they prayed for him, he got up. You know what he did? Didn't post about it on Facebook. You know what he did? He went back into the city and he preached again at them. I mean, this is one seriously tough dude. He's not afraid. 
And here we get something of a motive in his life. Why does he do what he do? And the Bible tells us, for I fully expect and hope. I fully expect. I don't only expect, but I also hope. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about his dream in life. I expect. I hope. He's talking about, why do I live? What am I about? What is it that I want to do in life? I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I've been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ. That's it. Why do I live? This is now Paul speaking. If you press Paul on the side and you said, why do you live? You know what he would have said? I live to honor Jesus. That's why I get up in the morning. And then he says, whether I live or die, let's go on. Whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. I mean, who has ever said that? That just doesn't sound intuitive, right? No one puts that on their fridge. <laughs> uh, yes, they put the first part. For me to live is Christ. Whoa, that's just awesome. And dying is going, dying is even better. I mean, whoa, dude. Go and see a doctor, please. Huh? That is a bit, wow, that's a bit, I mean, what is going on there? You know what he's saying there? He's saying that this motive to bring honor to Christ is so powerful. It's so powerful that it determines his life and it determines his dying. He will bring honor to Christ in living and in dying. And in dying, dying will even be better than living because what he's aiming at is to have Christ. And in dying, he will be closer to Christ even. Now listen, often when we talk about motive in life, when we talk about why do we do what we do, often when we talk about what's my mission in life, what I'd like to do someday in life, you know the problem with that? The problem with that is often we aim at things that's not strong enough. Often we aim at things that's not strong enough. For Buster Douglas, he had a very good motive. He wanted to honor the dying wishes of his mother. So he got up and knocked out Mike Tyson. But you know what? Somebody else took his uh, title one fight later. He fell into deep depression. He became alcoholic. It took him years to get through that. You see, with a great motive, you're able to do something amazing once off. You're able to do something amazing maybe twice. You do, you, you're able to do something amazing for a short while, but you're not able to live a life that is truly glorious. Why? Because the motive is actually not strong enough. There's only motive that is one motive that is strong enough, and that is to live for Jesus. Now we need to hear that. For us, that is very, very difficult. Because we're steeped in a culture that says, it is about me. Everything is about me. But it's not. You see, these guys lived and died because they lived for Jesus. If you want to overcome fear, you need to start living for Jesus. Because the fear of death will never conquer you. Can I tell you an amazing story of that? It's a story of uh, Charles Wesley, who's a founder of uh, the Methodist movement. Uh, I think 1700s or something like that. 1800s. John Wesley. And... Um, I mean, these guys did amazing stuff, amazing revivals. And he actually went to America on a ship those days. So I had to opposite go via a ship. And he had a torrid time, hey? Had a torrid time of it. He really struggled. Even though he was already in ministry, this is now before the revival broke out. 
And what happened was there was actually a group of missionaries that went with him on that ship. I think they were Moravians, if memory serves correct. What happens is when they got close to the coast of America, a terrible storm struck. You know where this is going. Everyone started screaming. Everyone started losing it. And then he, he realized he's, uh, I'm one of those that's actually screaming and losing it. And then he looked at the Moravians and he saw, he saw that they were not afraid. Actually, when the storm struck, they were actually in the middle of a church service on a Sunday on the ship. And they just continued to worship service. Kids, women, wives, husbands, no one is screaming. No one is phased. And he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that he lost it like that. And he looked at them and he saw these guys really had peace in the midst of a storm. And then he spoke to some of them afterwards. And he realized there's a difference between having faith. This is now how he, how he describes it. He says there's a difference between having faith and having saving faith. You see, to live for Christ gets us in a position where we don't fear death. We don't fear bad things because we live for something bigger where the why is stronger than the fight. So the first key that I said tonight, and I'm just really running through this, the first key that I said is you need to decide that fear is a bigger enemy than a storm, number one. Number two, the reason why you're living and what you're doing what you're doing needs to be really strong. The why needs to be stronger than the fight. The third one, and I'm going to stop with that very briefly, is this. John the Apostle. Now, John the Apostle went through tough stuff as well. Um, in fact, he's, he's the only apostle that died of natural causes. Not that they didn't try to kill him. According to church tradition, what happened to him is uh, Domitian severely persecuted him, put him in a pot of boiling oil, and nothing happened to him. He didn't get fried or anything. So they banished him to the island of Patmos. Now, remember, of all the guys that he went through, all the fellow disciples, all the fellow apostles, he was the only one that was still alive and is put to be on his own in the islands of Patmos. And there he had uh, inspiration for the book of Revelations. But he really went through very tough stuff. And he writes, yeah, and I think this is really a key for us, verse 16, and this is 1 John 4. We know how much God loves and we've put our trust in his love. God is love. God is is love. We can overcome fear because God is love. Not, not love is God. Uh, but, by the way, that's the storyline of the world. Love is God. No, no. No, no, no. God is love. God defines love. God is love. Not that God has love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. Here's the thing, though. This is not an unknown sort of verse, right? I mean, this is a verse that we hear quite often. Perfect love drives out all fear. So we're like, mm, let me get some of that more perfect love, right? Let me go into worship. Let me think a bit about that love. Let me experience that love. And as I experience that love, mm, it drives out all fear. The only thing we don't ask often with that sort of context is we don't ask what sort of fear is that. And isn't it interesting that it talks, if we go a slide back, it actually talks about judgment. 
Here's the point that I want to make. Sometimes we fear the things the most that we shouldn't fear much. And sometimes the things that we fear the most are the things that we fear the least. Jesus said, and again here, this is not the most pastoral saying, in the sense that this is not what we expect Jesus to say. Jesus says, do not fear the one who can kill you. Fear the one who can kill you and then afterwards cast your soul into hell. He's saying, who should you really fear? You should fear God. Charles Spurgeon said, the fear of the Lord is a lion that drives away all other fears. Why? Because think about that. On the day of judgment, just being very honest about this, the day of judgment, God will look at us as we are, not how we'd like to be, what we did, not what we tell other people we did, what really lives in our heart, not what we pretend to live in our heart, and God will look at it in an absolute way, our thinking, our saying, our doing, whether we sit, whether we stand, at what age, and God will make a final decision concerning where we are. Are we going to heaven? Are we going to hell? Are you confident about that? Because I'm not confident about that. Is that something to fear? That is something to fear, and that is something that I fear. Except for the perfect love of Jesus that takes my place. As somebody, we were flying over here, and somebody said to me, yeah, you know, it's quite weird, because normally on a plane, if somebody asks me, so what do you do for a living? And I go like, mm, I'm a pastor. That person goes like, let's move away from this dude. All right? It's, it's weird, because I used to be a physiotherapist, so when somebody says, what do you do? Like I'm a physiotherapist. People are like, oh man, yuck, my neck. And then they tell me about their back injuries. They tell me surgery in the knee. And then I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, maybe it's nice in that sense. If I say I'm a pastor, everyone goes like, conversation killer. Conversation, the ultimate conversation killer. So next time, if you're really tired on a bus or plane or something like that, and you don't want somebody to talk to you, you just go like, I'm a pastor. And then you check out, they ignore you. Only problem is that's a bit of a lie if you're not a pastor, so it might be tricky. But anyway, I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll work at least. So let's put it that way. So I said to the guy, I'm a pastor. So the next thing, this guy starts asking me about good and evil and you know, good, he, he's a good person and God will let go, good people go to heaven. And what about the guy that doesn't believe in Jesus? Surely he's going to heaven as well. And I said to him, you, look, all you're saying is perfectly true, but your problem is how you're defining good. Because if you define good, you've got to define it according to the level of God. And I don't know about you, but I'm standing on my own without the blood of Jesus will not make heaven. And there might be people in this world that is like really perfect, and they will, on their own steam, make it to heaven. There might be people like that, all the power to them. But I'm certainly not one of them. So I said, are you one of them? Are you one of them? But here's the point. The love of Jesus compels him to die for us, to die for us. So that on the day of judgment, we can have boldness. And here's the point. If we can have boldness in the worst of the worst moment, in the most dangerous moment, why then don't we have boldness for all the other stuff? Because the storm will not judge me. The storm will not destroy me. The storm will not rip apart and tear apart who I am. 
If on the day of judgment I am safe, am I not then safe everywhere else? And this is what the fear of the Lord entails. If God is so big in my vision, then everything else becomes so small. You see, it's a matter of perspective. Let's close our foot tonight. And here's what I really want to say. Fear is a huge enemy in South Africa. Maybe not only in South Africa, but in South Africa certainly it's a huge enemy. It's something that I see all the time. I see it on a personal level. I see it in communities. I certainly see it in our nation. And we need to make a choice tonight and say fear will have no place here. I will not pray in fear. I will not live in fear. I will not make decisions in fear. Fear is an arch enemy. I will not be hollowed out until I am an effigy of a man. I will not be hollowed out until I am less of a person. I will not have fear because I've not been given the spirit of fear. But then equally I need to say to myself, so why do I do what I do? Do I live to honor Christ? Would I live to glorify myself? And look, you are special. You are unique. You are, there's only one you. You are important. The Bible says that God counts the very hair upon our heads. In my case, he's counting backwards. But he's still counting. It's how important I am. That's how important you are. But here's the thing. I'm not strong enough to keep the sun from going down. I'm not strong enough to make the sun rise. I'm not strong enough to keep the weight of the world on my shoulder. I'm not even strong enough to save myself, right? I need Jesus. And do I live in the presence of Jesus or do I live for myself? I can't have it both ways. Like Paul, I can say, I live to honor Christ. And because of that, I live for Christ. And living is is good, but dying is even better because I'll be with Jesus. Number three, I need to say to myself, perfect love drives out all fear. You know, for some of us, we need to come to grips that sin is real, that God is real, that judgment is real, that heaven is real, that hell is real. It's not something that some pastor dude says in the front to motivate people to come to church. It's real. But once I deal with it, I deal with the perfect love of Jesus. And if Jesus died for me, and the worst, the worst moment of my life is dealt with, the worst of the worst is dealt with. I will fear nothing else. Nothing else can get me. Nothing else can destroy me. Because my destiny is safe. I will be with Jesus. So whether cancer comes for me or bankruptcy comes for me or difficulty comes for me, whatever comes for me, it will not destroy me because my lot is secure. And in that moment when the storm comes, I will have faith. Because it might seem like Jesus is sleeping, but I can still call upon Jesus. And he will answer. Amen.